The Wanderings of B'nai Israel in the Desert by Rav Yaakov Medan. A review of several biblical sources indicates that the wanderings of B'nai Israel in the wilderness had additional significance, aside from the need to circumvent the land of Plishtim and depart from the punishment decreed on the nation as a result of the sin of the spies. These sources mainly point to another message. The wilderness is a place with no means of subsistence. It is there that B'nai Israel learn that it is God who feeds and sustains them, whether with man, with quails, or with water. The precise significance of this message differs from one source to the next. Some emphasize that our food comes from God, and we must therefore not become arrogant and forget Him when we have plenty of everything in Eretz Israel. Elsewhere, the emphasis is that our hearts should not be tempted to believe that the foreign gods of the land are the source of our sustenance. Yet another source notes the loyalty of the nation that believed in God in an unsown land with no food. Of all of these, we choose here to discuss the wandering in the desert as depicted in the prophecy of Amos, who describes the trek entirely from a social perspective in terms of justice and righteousness. We read, Let justice roll down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer sacrifices and offerings to me in the desert for forty years, O house of Israel? Wandering in the desert with the threat of starvation served to transform the ragtag group of slaves that left Egypt into a nation that bears the standard of righteousness, justice, and social equality, concerning which the nations of the world are destined to comment, Which nation is so great that it has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this Torah which I place before you today? A review of the story of May Merivah demonstrates that the water that Moshe sweetened was meant to do more than merely quench the thirst that had built up over three days. We read, He called out to God, and God showed him a tree. He cast it into the water, and the water was sweetened. There he made for them chok umishpat, a statute and a judgment, and there he tested them. The Torah gives no indication of what the test was, but from the context we may conclude that it was related to the statute and the judgment mentioned together with it. We must clarify, then, which statute and judgment were given at Marah. In the Midrashim of Chazal, we find different opinions on this question. The Gemara mentions laws, dinim, Shabbat, and honoring parents, and explains, dinim, there he made for them chok umishpat, Shabbat and honoring parents, because in the Ten Commandments in Sefer Dvarim, both of these commandments mention the words, as the Lord your God commands you. Hence, we deduce that B'nai Israel were given these commandments prior to the revelation at Sinai. But what is the statute that is referred to as having been given at Marah? To our understanding, the word statute, chok, is meant here as a specified measurement, particularly a specified ration of food. When the waters of the well were sweetened, God established a chok, a ration or measure, as to how much water each person was entitled to draw for himself, for his family, and for his cattle. If no ration were determined per person from the waters of the well, it is difficult to describe the chaos that would have ensued when 600,000 thirsty people, after three days of wandering in the desert, were to grab water for themselves, their families, and their cattle. The chok, the ration, required mishpat, in other words, an actual rule as to the ration of each family. At Marah, the group of slaves who had just been freed, and who did not recognize each other and their rights, faced the first test of mutual respect, consideration for others, and especially discipline. All of these are fundamental elementary concepts on the road to building a properly run society and nation. They are elementary concepts on the road to freedom.
the test of freedom is not whether a person is able to do whatever he wishes, but rather whether he is able to act in accordance with his will, out of free choice, but at the same time, to remain a human being, in the moral and cultural sense of the word. Therefore, this is also the test of a free society and of a free nation. The statute and judgment concerning the water are themselves the test of there he tested them, as the continuation of the story proves. When B'nai Israel reach the wilderness of Sin, their bread runs out. In their hunger, they complain against Moshe and Aharon. And, just as God sweetened the water for them at Marah, so too he rains down food for them from heaven, the man. Again, the man is given at the price of a test. Behold, I rain down for you bread from the heavens, so that the people can go out and gather each day's rations, in order that I may test them as to whether they will follow my Torah or not. In the parasha dealing with the man, an explicit commandment is given, and this itself turns out to be the test. This is the thing that God commanded. Gather of it each person according to his eating, and omer per person according to your numbers. Each person shall take for those who are in his tent. B'nai Israel succeeded in this test. They gathered, some more and some less. And when they measured the omer, he who had taken more had none left over, and he that had gathered less was not lacking. They gathered each according to his eating. We do not know how much man descended each day, but even if there was a great abundance, no one could know in advance what quantity would be needed to feed millions of hungry mouths with man. Clearly, the man had to suffice for everyone. People who took more than they needed would cause their neighbors to suffer a shortage. Again, this was a test of respect presented to free people who were not receiving their set rations from their masters, but rather were able to gather it themselves, and could, were it not for the commandment, and, had they so wished, take more for themselves. We may add further, the test of gathering a set measure of man was not an easy one. In two separate places the Torah praises the taste of the man. Its taste was like a wafer with honey. Its taste was like an oil cake. At the same time, the Torah states, He afflicted you and made you hungry, and fed you with the man, which you had not known. A comparison of the sources leads us to conclude that although man was good and tasty, it was provided in small measure, which was enough for survival, but not enough to fill one's stomach. It did not give a feeling of satiety. If we add to the sense of hunger, which was experienced also by the elderly, the children, and the sick, the fact that it was forbidden to keep any of the man aside, even for emergencies, we may begin to understand the extent of the test involved in gathering by measure. The purpose of this measure was statute and judgment, to enable everyone to gather and eat in equal measure, not to allow a situation in which only the strongest prevail. As mentioned above, two additional commandments were given at Marah, Shabbat and honoring parents. Therefore, concerning these commandments, as they appear in the Ten Commandments in Sefer Dvarim, we are told, as the Lord your God commanded you. Let us devote some discussion to the commandment of Shabbat in this context. Two main reasons are given for the commandment of Shabbat. First, Shabbat is a testimony to the fact that God created the heavens and the earth within a given time. Second, in order that your manservant and maidservant shall rest like you, and you shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt. These two reasons may be viewed as addressing the two focuses of our faith, the creation of the world and the exodus from Egypt. Here we shall emphasize the first reason, the creation ex nihilo, and the continuation of the world's existence by virtue of justice and righteousness. The Gemara mentioned above, as well as Rashi and Dvarim, assume that Shabbat, as commanded at Sinai, is a sign of the creation, 
while Shaban is commanded at Marah, and, as mentioned in the Ten Commandments in Sefer Dvarim, is a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt, and in order that your manservant and maidservant shall rest like you. This assumption fits what we said above, that the crux of the commandment at Marah concerned the Chokum Mishpat, the emphasis is on equality, on the like you, like you in resting on Shabbat, like you in the ration of water from the well, and later on, like you in the Omer measure of man. Let us explain further. The Gemara provides no details as to which of the laws of Shabbat were commanded to Bnei Yisrael at Marah. It is difficult to imagine that all of the 39 categories of Melacha were taught there, since these are derived from the Melachot performed in the Mishkan, while the stop at Marah preceded the commandment to build the Mishkan. Moreover, the logical deduction of the prohibited categories of Melacha from the categories of work performed in the Mishkan arises from the juxtaposition of the Parshiyot discussing the Mishkan and Shabbat respectively. Since the connection is based on a juxtaposition that appears only later on, Bnei Israel could not have received this commandment at Marah. It seems, therefore, that Bnei Israel were commanded concerning the 39 categories of Melacha as an explanation for the mitzvah of Shabbat given at Sinai. The categories of creative Melacha associated with the Mishkan are a remembrance of the creative Melacha of creation, and the cessation from such Melacha and Shabbat is a remembrance of the Shabbat of creation, as stated in the Ten Commandments, as they appear in Sefer Shemot, and in the Shabbat command in the context of the Mishkan. For in six days God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he ceased and rested. The mitzvah of Shabbat that was given at Marah consisted, to our view, in one single prohibition of melacha, a category of melacha whose connection with the work of the Mishkan is weak, the act of carrying from one sort of domain, reshut, to another. This melacha is mentioned in the parashah of Shabbat in the wilderness of Sin, and from the rebuke over the breach in Shabbat observance. It appears that this prohibition was not given there for the first time, but rather was already known to them. Apparently, then, B'nai Yisrael were commanded in this regard at Marah. According to Rashi's understanding, the Shabbat commandment given at Marah is the Shabbat mentioned in the Ten Commandments in Sefer Dvarim, whose essence is a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt, social justice, equality between the master and slave and rest, and in the rations of water and man whose essential command concerns the melachah of carrying from one domain to another. The Shabbat command at Sinai, on the other hand, and mentioned in the Ten Commandments in Sefer Shmot, reminds us of the creation of the world within a set time. This is the Shabbat mentioned in connection with the work of the Mishkan, and whose essence is the commandment concerning the 39 categories of Melachah. Let us now elaborate a little on our hypothesis that at Marah B'nai Israel were commanded only concerning transfer from one domain to another, while at Sinai they were commanded concerning all 39 categories of Melachah. It seems that this change is connected to another change that B'nai Israel underwent at the foot of Har Sinai, a transition from being a group of nomads, lacking any permanent home or place, a society entirely involved in journeying or preparing for journeying, into a nation dwelling in a permanent place, at the foot of Har Sinai, its life revolving around creativity and building, the establishment of God's Mishkan. The establishment of the Mishkan required that the nation involve itself in all 39 categories of Melachah, from agricultural activities required for Mishkan materials, to textile work, hunting, leather work, metal refinement, construction, assembly, and dismantling. Even if not everyone in the nation was actively involved in these activities, there can be no doubt that the establishment of the Mishkan was the focus of the national intention and the center of national life. It was there at Sinai, specifically because of the joy of creativity and the feeling that mortals were establishing a home for the God of the heavens, that Bnei Israel were commanded to place limits on the sense of doing.
There they were commanded to rest on Shabbat from all sorts of work in general, and from the work involved in the Mishkan in particular, to remember that God created the entire universe. Man dwells in the domain of the Creator, not the opposite. At Marah and in the wilderness of Sin, until God revealed His glory to them, and until they were commanded with regard to the essence of faith, the problem was a different one. There, as we have said, Bnei Israel were not engaged in action and creativity, and their food was available to them without their having to exert much effort. They found a desert oasis with streams and date palms, or they obtained food miraculously, in the form of the man, or the quails in the wilderness of Sin, and at the wells of Maran or Fidim. It appears, then, that the main occupation of those who left Egypt during this period was commerce. Basic nourishment was provided to all from on high, but when it came to other requirements, such as vessels and clothing, they must have traded amongst themselves, or with foreign caravans that they encountered along the way. Many of them owned assets that they took from the Egyptians when they borrowed their vessels, and from the booty seized at the Red Sea. The water and man could have served as additional property for trade, and an additional factor in the accumulation of capital, had it not been for the explicit prohibition against gathering more than the requirement for each individual. At Marah, and specifically there, the Torah comes to place limits on commercial activity and the efforts to accumulate capital. This is done in two ways. First, by placing a choku mishpat, essentially a setting down of the ration of water for each family and each individual, as in the case of the man later on. At the same time, the other rules of choku mishpat were set down, the concepts of righteousness, loyalty, and justice in national life in general. There he gave them choku mishpat, and there he tested them. Second, through the mitzvah of Shabbat, given at Marah as stated, the creative milacha that was prohibited in this command concerned carrying from one domain to another, the only category of milacha whose connection with the creative work of Mishkan is weak. The unique character of the category of milacha that involves carrying between domains and its associated prohibitions is emphasized not only in the parasha of Shabbat in the wilderness of Sin and in the source for Shabbat at Marah as explained above, Nehemiah introduced Shabbat enactments specifically concerning carrying. We read in Nehemiah, In those days I saw in Yehudah people treading the winepress on Shabbat, and bringing in sheaves of corn, and loading donkeys even with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, and bringing them to Jerusalem on Shabbat. I warned them on the day when they sold produce. The people of Tsar who lived there, who brought fish and all sorts of wares, sold them on Shabbat to the inhabitants of Yehudah and in Yerushalayim. It happened when the gates of Jerusalem grew dark before Shabbat. I commanded that the gates should be shut, and I commanded that they should not be opened again until after Shabbat. And I posted some of my servants at the gates, so that no burden should be brought in on a Shabbat day. So the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge around the wall? If you do this again, I will lay my hands on you. From that time onward, they did not come on Shabbat. I told the Levim that they should purify themselves as guards to the gates and sanctify the Shabbat day. Nehemiah also makes mention of the other sorts of melacha, but his principal objection concerns carrying, bringing produce into the city on Shabbat. Concerning these verses in Nehemiah, the Gemara teaches that the strict enactment concerning vessels was reinforced at Nehemiah's time. It was forbidden to carry anything other than cups, bowls, and the three household items mentioned in the Brayta. Only in later periods did halachic authorities gradually allow carrying certain vessels. This enactment was introduced as a strict protective fence around the melacha of carrying. The reason for the widespread violation of Shabbat specifically in the area of carrying is clear from Nehemiah's testimony. It relates to commercial life in Jerusalem. 
those who brought merchandise into Jerusalem were non-Jews, merchants from Tsar, and apparently also from Shomron, dictated the city's commerce. They chose business days that were convenient for them. The inhabitants of Jerusalem had very little possibility of engaging in agriculture and industry, and the pressures exerted by their non-Jewish environment made things no easier for them. The Jews were a minority living in the cities, while most of the fields were in the hands of non-Jews who had settled there before the return of the exiles from Babylon. The Jews then were forced into adopting an urban lifestyle. They bought their agricultural produce from the non-Jews. Commerce occupied an important place in their lives, and when the business day was set by the non-Jewish merchants as Shabbat, the violation of Shabbat concerned mainly the malachah of carrying. Jerusalem, surrounded by a wall with gates that were locked at night, was private domain, and any commercial activity that took place within the city involved importing from the public domain outside the walls into this private domain inside the walls. Nehemiah took steps to halt the phenomenon. He chased the merchants away from the gates of the city and enacted the prohibitions of carrying from one sort of domain to another in order to reinforce this special aspect of Shabbat observance. Since then, carrying from one domain to another is the Shabbat activity with the greatest number of protective enactments. The situation toward the end of the first temple period, in the days of Yehoiakim ben Yoshiahu, when Yirmiyahu's prophecy quoted above was uttered, was no better. We read, The cities of the Negev will be shut up, with none to open them. And, A leopard will lie in wait over the cities. Anyone who goes out from them will be torn apart. And also, God set against him the bands of Kasdim, and the bands of Aram, and the bands of Moab, and the bands of the children of Ammon. Most of all, the situation is summed up in the story of the children of Rechev, tent-dwelling shepherds who tell Yirmiyahu in the days of Yehoiakim, It happened when Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, came up to the land. We said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Kasdim, and for fear of the army of Aram. So now we dwell in Jerusalem. This being the situation, it is no surprise that most of the produce was in non-Jewish hands, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem engaged mainly in buying the produce from non-Jews who dictated the business calendar. The main warning against this violation of Shabbat was applied specifically to carrying burdens of wares and produce through the city gates, as Yirmiyahu declares, Thus said God to me, Go and stand at the gate of the children of the nation, by which the kings of Yehudah enter and by which they leave, and at all the gates of Jerusalem. Say to them, Hear the word of God, O kings of Yehudah, and all of the Yehudah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter these gates. So says God, Guard yourselves, lest you bear a burden on the Shabbat day, and bring it into the gates of Jerusalem. Nor shall you carry a burden out of your houses on the Shabbat day, nor shall you do any melachah. You shall sanctify the Shabbat day as I commanded your ancestors, and it will be, if you listen to me, promises God, and not bring a burden into the gates of this city on the Shabbat day. And you sanctify the Shabbat day, and not perform any melachah on it. Then through the gates of this will enter the kings and princes who sit upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Yehudah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. But if you do not listen to me, to sanctify the Shabbat day, and not to carry burdens, and you come into the gates of Jerusalem on the Shabbat day, then I shall kindle a fire in its gates, and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it will not be extinguished. From Yirmiyahu's prophecies we see a further development. The decline of artisan work and the conversion of the inhabitants of Jerusalem into a community of merchants brought in their wakes another obstacle. So says God, Go down to the house of the king of Yehudah, and say there this word, and you shall say, Hear the word of God, O king of Yehudah, sitting upon the throne of David. 
you and your servants and your people who enter these gates, so says God, perform judgment and righteousness, save the robbed from the hand of the oppressor, do not wrong or oppress the stranger, the orphan and the widow, and do not spill innocent blood in this place. For if you do this thing, then into the gates of this house will enter kings who sit upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. But if you do not hear these words, I swear by myself, says God, that this house shall become a desolation. The structure of the prophecy and its style point to a connection between it and the prophecy concerning bearing burdens on Shabbat. The commands given to those who enter the gates, the gates of the city and the gates of the king's palace, are the prohibition against carrying on Shabbat and guarding the rights of the robbed, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Shabbat, as it relates to the place of business, does not come to testify to God's creation of the world in six days. The cessation of the melachah of carrying does not involve cessation from creative melachah, since it involves no creativity. The Shabbat of the workplace is not meant to stop productivity and development. It is meant to halt the unending pursuit of money which is related to commerce. The greatest danger in this pursuit of money is the overt and covert deceit, the villainy which may technically be permissible or may not. All of these involve the same result, injustice toward the weak and the innocent. For one day in the week, God commands that a person halt his battle for survival, his desire for riches. For one day in the week, a person must remember the waters of the well at Marah and the Man, by which Shabbat was sanctified and blessed. In this way he will recognize that his sustenance comes from God, and it is God who determines how much he will receive. He will recognize that we borrow from him and he gives, that all eyes are turned to him, and he gives them food at the proper time. Throughout the forty years, beginning with the Shabbat at Marah and the Shabbat in the wilderness of Sin, all those who left Egypt and their children ate the same food and in equal quantities. Together they quenched their thirst and together they suffered hunger. A merchant who thinks to himself, When will the new month be over, that we may sell corn, and Shabbat, that we may set forth wheat? making the ephah small and the shekel great, falsifying their deceitful balances, will remember, when commerce is postponed on the seventh day, that all of God's children are equal in his eyes, and he opens his hand to feed all of them. No amount of effort on man's part will achieve anything, unless his Father in heaven sets aside sustenance for him. He who redeemed him from the slavery of Egypt, and also from the fleshpot there, is the same one who promises to provide food for him and for his family. He asks only one thing— that your manservant and your maidservant shall rest like you. Before we conclude our discussion of Shabbat, we must mention the parallel between the two Shabbatot, the Shabbat of Marah and of the wilderness of Sin, and the Shabbat of Sinai, and the commandment to let the land lie fallow in the seventh year. The subject of Shemitah is clearly divisible into two separate commandments. One is, For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather all your produce. But in the seventh year there shall be a Shabbat of Shabbatot for the land, a Shabbat to God. You shall not sow your field, nor shall you prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows by itself of your harvest, nor shall you gather the grapes of your undressed vine. A Shabbat of the Shabbatot shall there be for the land. The reason for this command is reflected in the explanation for the commandment concerning the Yovel year, which follows immediately afterward. For the land is mine, you are strangers and sojourners with me. The nation that reaches its land and inherits it may be mistaken into thinking that they own it, believing that they till it by virtue of their ownership of it. In the seventh year, every supposed landowner is required to abandon work on his land and to commemorate a Shabbat for God, thereby declaring, as the prophet Yirmiyahu did, I, God, form the land. By my great strength and by my outstretched arm, I give it to whomever is upright in my eyes. 
It is not the nation that hosts the Shekhinah in their land, but rather the opposite. You are strangers and sojourners with me. That which is said of the Mishkan on the seventh day is said also of the entire land in the seventh year. A second commandment in this parasha, with no direct connection to the prohibition of Melachah in the seventh year, is, The produce of the land of the seventh year shall be food for you, for you and for your manservant and for your maidservant, for your hired servant and for the stranger that dwells with you, and for your cattle and for the beasts that are in your land shall all its produce be for food. The sages explain, for food, but not for merchandise. The Torah here is not prohibiting work, but rather commerce. The purpose of this prohibition is to achieve equality between the landowner and the stranger, who has no land. For one out of every seven years, man halts his pursuit of money. Together with his neighboring stranger, he eats a sort of man from the table on high. We read in Vayikra, If you will say, What shall we eat during the seventh year? For we shall not sow, nor shall we gather our produce. I command my blessing to you in the sixth year, and its produce will suffice for three years. Again, the landowner's obligation concerning food for the stranger and for his servants is the master of the universe's own obligation concerning food for his children and his servants, food for his nation dwelling in his inheritance as strangers and sojourners. The acceptance of his mastership and ownership of the land is the Shabbat described in the Ten Commandments in Sefer Shmot. It is the Shabbat of the land and its prohibition of agricultural melachah. The faith that the master of the universe and the God of the land will sustain us from his open hand, and that he alone determines our sustenance, rather than our unceasing efforts, that is the Shabbat of Marah, of the wilderness of Sin and of Sefer Dvarim, and this is the Shemitah of the land for the stranger and for the sojourner, for food and not for commerce.